we explore with Custer and take a fresh look at the modern forest. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today it's Thursday, August 24th. This is In the Moment. Author and photographer Paul Horsted returns to the program. We'll talk about the fourth edition of his book, Exploring with Custer. It's an examination of historic photos from the 1874 expedition. Those photos are presented alongside modern photos from the same perspective. And that new edition is, in some ways, a brand new book. More on that coming this hour. We talk rural health care with South Dakota Hall of Fame inductee Tom Dean. Kevin Wooster explores the sandhills of Nebraska, plus the balloons launch over hot springs. We'll preview that later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh, here in the moment. Well, much of South Dakota has been enduring and melting in a multi-day heat wave. Is this normal? Is it something we see this time of year every year? Are we breaking records that uh, we wish we weren't breaking? Todd Heidkamp is a meteorologist in charge at the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls, and he's with me on the phone now with uh, some answers. Todd Heidkamp, welcome back. Thanks for being here. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for having me, Lori. I appreciate it. <laughs> We've just been sitting here saying it's hot. So how hot has it been? Put this in context. Well, you don't need to have a meteorologist tell you that then, right? right. Hey, everyone knows it's hot. <laughs> it has been hot. And, it's, uh, you know, and, and like you said at the, uh, on your intro, is, uh, this isn't really anything new. We've had these uh, type of you know, heat waves before. Uh, they may not have been as extreme as these in some cases. But, you know, I think if, you, if people have been living here long enough, they know that typically the first week of uh, kids going back to school uh, usually ends up in some type of heat wave. Tell me a little bit from, a, from your standpoint, what causes this and why it lasts, you know, a short period of time or a long period of time? What's at play here in the atmosphere? Well, really, you know, this is a heat wave is originated out west, and then it just kind of progressed further to the east, and then we have this dome of high pressure, uh, which just kind of uh, continues to amplify the heat a little bit more. It just kind of suffocates uh, the atmosphere, basically, and that's why you, you know, a lot of times when we've been waking up the past couple of days, you see a lot of moisture, a lot of uh, dew on your windows and the whole thing, because there's so much moisture that's been trapped in place by this high-pressure system. And so it's not only the, the heat, but the moisture that's also in place, and, uh, and that's really causing the heat index to, to climb well above 100, in some cases, uh, you know, 115 to 120 uh, the past couple of days. Tell me a little bit about where this does um, land in record setting. I mean, you said it was a little bit higher than normal, but not, you know, it is fairly normal to have a really hot uh, period of time this time of year. What are the yeah, comparisons? What are really useful any- comparisons? Yeah. Yeah, we haven't had any record high temperatures broken uh, here in Sioux Falls. As bad as it's been and as bad as it's felt, uh, we haven't really had anything uh, other than a, a high temperature uh, being broken or some record lows down in Sioux City. But uh, in the Sioux Falls area itself, uh, we haven't had anything like that. Uh, you know, we're, we've tied some warm overnight low temperatures, but actual high temperatures, no. So uh, it, it, as bad as it seems, we've had worse years. And it's going to get cold real soon, and we're all going to look back 
<laughs> well, that's 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 what we call you know uh, we uh, we meteorologists make fun of all the time. You know how can we please people? Everyone in the middle of the winter they want uh, the warmer temperatures, and the warmer temperatures come here now they want the cooler weather. So uh, th- these types of extremes, whether or not it's the summer or the winter, we kind of call it population control around here as well. Surely you're not uh, telling me that I am hard to please, Todd. I can't. Surely that is not the implication here. <laughs> After 40 years of doing this, Lori, I can tell you, you're not the only one. Let's put it that way, okay? All right. Tell us a little bit for people who are still kind of navigating this, the safety things that uh, you think people just need to be reminded, just like we talk when ice and snow comes, you know, those basic reminders for people for how to be safe out there. Yeah, you know, the main thing is, uh, you know, try, try to avoid the heat of the day. You know, and the warmest part of the day is typically from about noon to 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Try to get done with any uh, strenuous activities uh, before that time. Uh, and especially now with what we're talking about schools, a lot of schools are, have, uh, you know, football practices, band practices, or anything like that. We ask everyone to do that early in the morning before it really gets uh, obnoxiously uh, hot. And then also drink plenty of water. Drink plenty of non-alcoholic beverages. A lot of times people will drink a lot of Gatorade, and that's not bad. That replenishes a lot of stuff, but there's, you cannot replace the good old-fashioned uh, H2O, uh, the water. And so keep that in mind. And then also just be aware of signs of uh, heat exhaustion, like uh, that's a, like if you're starting to feel dizzy or if you're getting really thirsty and you, the water's not uh, really satisfying that thirst, or all of a sudden you really start to sweat a lot and you feel a little bit nauseous. Those are all signs of heat exhaustion. And then if your body stops sweating, that's when you need to really be concerned at that point in time because that sweat is really your body reacting to the warmer temperatures, and when it stops, your internal core temperature is warming up too much, and you need to get that taken care of right away. Todd Heidkamp, meteorologist in charge at the National Weather Service. Always a delight to talk to you. Thanks so much for being here. Not a problem, Lori. Call anytime. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. This summer, we have been getting to know the newest inductees into the South Dakota Hall of Fame. They're people like Dr. Tom Dean. Dean grew up on a farm in Wessington Springs. When he graduated from medical school in 1972, family medicine had only recently been approved as a specialty. He spent his career not only caring for thousands of patients, but by serving as a leading advocate and policymaker for sustainable rural health care. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Tom Dean in the studio yesterday. Take a listen. So much of the Hall of Fame is about excellence and um, not only finding and acknowledging and celebrating the people who have changed our lives in uh, obvious and sometimes not so obvious ways, but it's also about celebrating leadership and excellence. And I'm just kind of curious to know, um, are those things that you thought about as a rural physician um, or were you really just focused on the practice, focused on the patients, focused on the people? Well, I guess it was all of those things. <laughs> um, I've always had an interest in health policy, and so the, 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 the politics and the policy issues have always been an interest, even going back to medical school or before. But certainly the things that I've responded to are where I ran into or knew about clinical issues where things were not working for one reason or another, and, and that's oftentimes where the 
policy activities evolved from, that uh, there were things about the structure of medicine and the way it was paid and all of those things which were not helping my patients. And so that led me to get more involved with the, with the overall policy discussions. And, and rural practice, rural health care was incredibly important to you. Um, for some obvious reasons, but let's talk about that first. Why Why was rural health care the area of focus for you? Well, because I'm a rural guy. <laughs> and and I, I, I grew up in, a, in Westington Springs, or on a farm, actually, west of Westington Springs. My, my uncle was uh, a rural physician uh, in Westington Springs for many years, and he was a role model, and actually he's in the Hall of Fame as well, but because uh, uh, he, was, he was quite involved in discussions about how we can make uh, health care more effective and more relevant and more meaningful and for rural patients, do a better job of meeting the rural needs. That's about more than geography. It has to do, some of it has to do with just numbers, the fact that we're dealing with much smaller numbers of patients and uh, delivering services uh, is, is more of a challenge when you have a broader range of responsibility and a smaller number of providers to cover that, that responsibility. Tell me what your practice was like. Well, it was a small town primary care practice. Uh, the, the way it may have been different is right from the very start, I w- got involved with what was initially Tri-County Healthcare, and that evolved into Horizon Healthcare, which is part of the Community Health Center movement, which means that we were a clinic system that accepted, we had a certain amount of federal support uh, because many of the places where now Horizon has clinics are simply places where a typical uh, conventional uh, practice would not survive financially. And so the, there's a, uh, the Community Health Center uh, authorization, which is an old, old uh, uh, piece of legislation, uh, provides federal support through the uh, U.S. Public Health Service for communities that couldn't support uh, services on their own. Now that's a portion of those are rural and another portion are in inner city because of uh, working in areas where there were poverty is a huge issue. I, I felt uh, fortunate because I could see and deal with the whole spectrum of people. I mean I had some patients that were millionaires and I had some that really didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And so that I appreciated because it, it, it was a, a range of, of different uh, types of people and different interests and different behaviors and all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so when you went to medical school, you know, family practice, was that just coming up to be a thing? Tell me a little bit about some of the changes in the late 60s, early 70s, where medicine was changing. Yes, family practice was a brand new idea. When I was in college, I, I read some stuff in the media that the American Medical Association had uh, commissioned a study because old-time general practice was declining, and they felt there was a need for uh, not just 
narrow-focused specialists, but for providers that could know the person in a broad way and deal with the whole range of problems and try and both be a first contact person but also be a, a person that would coordinate the care even and work with the various specialists to try and be sure that the care that was being provided was was coordinated. Where I went to medical school in Rochester, New York, uh, they had one of the first departments of family medicine. And uh, then when I graduated, I was fortunate enough to get involved with the uh, family medicine department at the University of Washington, which was the very first family medicine residency in a major academic medical center. There were other, it, there were other residencies, but, but none in the, in the big, big uh, academic centers. Yeah. So you saw patients then back to, back to rural South Dakota. Um, you saw patients from their first breath to their last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your role then in a community? Because you know an awful lot about these families. You know when they're um, not eating like they should after the heart attack. You know when someone has an addiction problem. You know... Um, some, sometimes we know that. Sometimes you know that. We, we <laughs> um, what's the role of a rural doctor in a community? Why does that have value? Well, I'm obviously not very objective, but I think it has huge value. <laughs> yeah. um, because especially in today's uh, uh, medical environment, things are so fragmented because people that have... Uh, multiple different problems are oftentimes being seen by multiple different specialists. And too often things aren't well coordinated. And somebody, they, they certainly benefit if there's somebody that knows them and knows their, their situation, knows what things that they are likely to accept and what things they might not accept. Good physicians will always know those things. How did it change you? Well... <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, I was not very aggressive about any of these things when I first started out. And gradually through the years, I got more interested in, in how the policy development works. And I got more uh, comfortable speaking out about places where I thought it didn't work. And so I got involved with an organization called the National Rural Health Association and uh, about, I don't know, 12, 15 years after we moved to Wessington Springs, I became president of that organization. And, and with that, we spent more time in Washington and doing promoting lobbying. But I was still a full-time, small-town family doc, and that, yeah. that was my primary role. But... But I got more and more interested and really felt stronger that, that the system as it was structured really wasn't serving my patients as good as it should. That's Tom Dean, one of the 2023 inductees into the South Dakota Hall of Fame. The honors ceremony for this year's class is September 8th and 9th in Chamberlain, Oakoma.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. In 1874, a U.S. military expedition led by General George Armstrong Custer was dispatched to choose a location for a new army fort and to explore the natural resources of the Black Hills. The unit included 1,000 soldiers, 110 wagons, Native American scouts, reporters, and gold miners. What they found and what they did changed the course of human history in ways we are still seeking to understand today. Well, one of the most impactful elements of that expedition is how it was documented. Custer brought along a photographer, William Illingworth, and Illingworth's photographs of the expedition and the landscape still have stories to tell. Paul Horstead returns to In the Moment today. He is co-author of a book called Exploring with Custer, the 1874 Black Hills Expedition. It is now in its fourth edition with new photos and new information. It feels like a whole new book. So Horstead is with me now on the phone from Rapid City. Paul Horstead, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Lori, it's so great to be with you, and thank you for that overview. That was excellent. Thanks. Let's place people in your shoes now because you found these photos of William Illingworth, and as a photographer yourself, they inspired you to take on this really lifetime project of recreating the photos or putting yourself from the same perspective. Tell people a little bit about how you intersect with his work. Yeah, I think it really struck me when we moved to Custer about 25 years ago. Like a lot of people, I sort of had a vague idea that Custer had been in the Black Hills and, you know, but no idea where where exactly I'd seen these pictures here and there. And I came to realize uh, that a number of the photos were near my home. I mean, I could literally see some of the rocks in one of the pictures from my yard across the valley there north of Custer and and uh, began this process uh with help from many others, I should say, in earlier publications, uh, such as the one from SDSU, where they had uh, identified a number of these sites, uh, began looking at those uh, with my co-author, uh, Ernie Graffy, and and uh, one thing led to another. Eventually, we found you know, all 50 locations. They hadn't been, been found in the past, and uh, 50 places where uh, William Henry Illingworth set his camera in 1874, and now we can go to each of those places and study what's changed or stayed the same or you know, learn a little bit about history, of course. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to go back and revise virtually every page of this book. Yeah, we our, our previous edition was last uh, updated in 2005, and uh, as, as we know, uh, the Black Hills have changed a little bit in the last 20 years. It was originally published in 2002, so um, that was part of it. I wanted to see what had changed yet again in the past 20 years, let alone over the past you know almost 150 years now. And uh, the mountain pine beetle, for example, has changed the forest. And you can see that in some of these pictures that I've taken more recently in 2020. And I also went back in 2022, actually, last summer, and and did some of the sites again. Uh, But uh, also land ownership has changed in some places. So my co-author, Ernie Graffy, his half of the book, uh, is the guide to following this whole route of the wagon train through the Black Hills. And uh, he's woven together this narrative from more than 20 sources, you know, people who were there trying to explain, you know, what they saw each day of the expedition, and he's put that together in a really neat narrative. But even some of that we updated with some additional sources and also uh, guidance along that that route of the wagon train. Um, But uh, we were able to add a lot more to it, too, thanks to changes in technology. Um, The South Dakota State Historical Society holds a number of these uh, images, most of them actually the original glass plate negatives, 
So they've scanned those at really high resolution at our request, and, and now we have this just immense amount of detail that comes out of these pictures that we had no idea was even there 20 years ago. And there's been some other things like Google Earth and, and uh, other technologies, so digital photography. I'm shooting on digital, of course, now, and I was using film 20 years ago, so I can do a much better job of, of not only reproducing the photos but interpreting what's in them. Let's talk a little bit about the South Dakota State Historical Society and these glass plates. Um, what is revealing itself to you with the new scans and the new technology? What kind of detail are you seeing that you didn't see before? Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating, to me at least. Uh, for one thing, we now have, of course, a scan of the entire negative. And in the past, whenever a print was made in a dark room, and sometimes these were you know, copied two or three times, and you lose a lot of detail when you do that, of course, but now we're seeing all the way out to the edges of the negatives, and sometimes there's some really interesting information there, things that are right in the foreground of the picture, or in some cases we now know that Illingworth was scratching a title at the top of the negative. He scratched it right into the emulsion, and that was very seldom seen on prints that were made because it would just be routinely cropped off in the darkroom. So, but on top of that, then, is just the, the detail, the sharpness that's there when you get a sufficiently high-resolution scan. Uh, now we're zooming in and, you know, seeing details of wagons. And there's one picture of a campsite where you can see guys cooking over a fire. It looks like it's a little blurry because it's such a big enlargement. Another guy is dressing out an antelope. You know, that's what he's having for supper. So um, that sort of thing is fascinating to us uh, as we try to look for more information about what life was like on this expedition back in 1874. So you have spent a lot of time looking at one man's work, and there is a connection as you walk in the same spot and as you study how he saw things. How has William Illingworth changed you as a photographer? Boy, that's a that's a terrific question. Uh, you know, the, the notion of reproducing somebody else's photography in this way by putting my camera, I'm trying to get it literally down to, you know, I hope a couple of inches of where his lens was physically placed, and, and you can refine that using a, a laptop computer while I'm at the site. I'm shooting a picture and it's beaming over to my, my computer and then I look at it in the shade somewhere where I can see what's going on in Photoshop. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm constantly amazed at how he took his camera to places, you know, that's a challenge for me to bring my camera. And he was probably carrying, you know, over 100 pounds of equipment, probably with a mule or a horse to get to some of these spots. So it's given me an appreciation for what that meant for him to do that. And his technical expertise, uh, you know, I would put right up there alongside, you know, William Henry Jackson or any of the other uh, early uh, pioneering photographers. And so that's inspirational as well. And, and uh, it's funny when I get to these locations, uh, you know, I've, I've joked about this. It sometimes feel like you should turn around and his hat is sitting there or there's some remnant, you know, but of course there never is. But uh, we at least have these wonderful images that he's made, the first pictures in the Black Hills. And uh big part of the book, of course, is wanting to share that with readers, and uh, that's why we have GPS coordinates and other information that will guide people to uh, these photo sites when they're on public land, which most of them are on, on Forest Service property out here, so you can just guide yourself if you want to take a look for yourself what it's like at one of these places. Was he an artist as well as a documentarian? Like, I mean, He makes a choice that is based on you know, a few feet of what he thinks should make that picture. What Tell me about yeah. his composition or his artistry yeah, or his absolutely. eye. Well, for one thing, he was shooting in stereo most of the time. He took a few single-plate photos, but a lot of them are stereo, so that means he's got a camera with two lenses, and 
be shooting this format because then that would be printed to a, a stereo view card, which uh, maybe people have seen in a museum or maybe their grandmother's parlor. You know, you put this card into a viewer and look into the viewer and uh, see in stereo what, what the photographer was uh, was uh, photographing. And uh, the Viewmaster is a more recent rendition of that same technology that some of us had back in the 60s and 70s. So um, he's consciously, in some cases, you can really see he's trying for more stereo effect by uh, composing his pictures with objects in the foreground, such as boulders or trees or uh, even placed objects here and there. We can see one shot. He doesn't have a tree in the picture, and the next one he's stuck this little pine tree in between a couple of cracks in the rock. And and then there's, you know, like I said, he's looking for that sort of thing in the foreground because when you look at that in stereo, then you're seeing a, a three-dimensional image, and those, those objects seem to rise up in front of you. And uh, well, the cover shot of the book also has some you know, it's these tree stumps that are still there, you know, today after 150 years. And I think that was even part of his plan there was to have those sort of represent that three-dimensional quality in the photograph. So, uh, yeah, he definitely had an eye. I mean, uh, everything is well composed, almost without uh, exception. And, uh, you know, it makes it a challenge for me to get the, my camera in that same position with those objects in the foreground being so close to the camera. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. My guest right now is Paul Horstead. His uh, book called Exploring with Custer, the 1874 Black Hills Expedition, is in its fourth edition. And he's going to be doing some uh, free programs at a variety of locations around the Black Hills. Custer, South Dakota, on Saturday, August 26th at 2 p.m. Rapid City at the Journey Museum on August 27th, also at 2 p.m. local time. Then Spearfish on Thursday, August 31st at 4 p.m. in Jonas Hall, 305 at Black Hills State University. And Paul, when people come to these events, what are some of the things that um, you're hoping to reveal to them, not only about the book, but uh, what kind of questions do they often bring to you that you have to prepare yourself for when you're talking about yeah. the Black Hills National Forest? Sure, yeah. I guess the number one question is how do you find these sites? And, uh, mm. you know, it's a complicated answer because it kind of depends on the particular image. But, uh, again, a number of these were published in a book back in the 1970s by South Dakota State, which I, you know, admire that a lot. And, uh, uh, but the guidance to them was still, you know, still a little bit of a mystery getting back to them 25 years later in, in 2001. And uh, and now we're, we've added a number of other sites. So um, that question about how you do it, um, for example, there's a picture of Custer with a grizzly bear uh, that a lot of people are familiar with. And my co-author, Ernie Graffy, had done some remarkable work looking at the map that the expedition created. And by 1875, there was this map of the Black Hills, and it's so accurate that it's guided Ernie to the site where they camped the afternoon that picture was taken. And then with my help, we were able to zero in on very close to the location. And then with the help of a reader, eventually we actually got to the actual spots. You're looking at these exact same rocks that are in the, the picture that's in the, the picture of Custer with the grizzly bear that he and others shot there in the middle of the Black Hills. So it's a, it's a, it's a complicated answer, like I say sometimes, but uh, we uh, continue to you know to try to share that in, in, the, in the slide programs. I'll have more detail about that at those programs this weekend. A really thought-provoking introduction or addition um, in this book. I can't remember actually if it's an introduction, but by um, late scholar Jace DeCorey talking about yes. the Black Hills and what they mean to the tribes, the sacredness of this space. Tell me a little bit about how that came about and why that is important to you um, and your co-author to add. Yeah, I wish we would have thought of it 20 years ago, but 
I'm the publisher of the book as well, and I just, you know, I just really wanted to have that uh, that uh, Lakota voice added to this story. We have, you know, 25 uh, sources that do include some Indian scouts commenting on the expedition back in 1874. But, um, you know, I'm. <laughs> not afraid to say I'm an old white guy historian, you know, we're writing another book and, and you know, I, I mean, we're serious about it and we've tried to give it every bit of attention that it deserves, but I really wanted to have that other voice. And, uh, uh Ms. DeCorey was uh, kind enough to agree. You know, we talked a year ago now, almost to the day uh, about doing this. And she wrote a, uh, as we call it a reflection about what the expedition and its outcome meant to her people and, uh, what the sacredness of the black Hills means today to her people. And, um, you know, just thrilled to have that in the opening pages of the book. And then, you know, it was unbelievable. She passed away in December, or I'm sorry, November of last mm-hmm. year. And uh, so uh, we, uh, of course, published as uh, she wrote it and uh, added a few pictures of places that I think she was talking about, Bear Butte and, and other sacred places around the Black Hills. So, um, yeah, really glad to have that in the book. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we'll ever do another revision or not. I mean, we'll keep looking at this subject. We're always interested in more information, but at least... I think both Ernie and I feel like we've left this in a, we've put everything we could into the book at this point and we're leaving it you know, a little bit for posterity, but uh, we're still interested and we'll still be talking about it and researching it going forward. I, I doubt this is the last time you and I will talk for sure. And I doubt that it's the last time we'll <laughs> talk about this project. It's called Exploring with Custer, right. the 1874 Black Hills Expedition. Um, there are copies of the softcover edition around the state, usually in museums and, and bookstores and national park and national forest locations. You can, of course, go to paulhorstead.com. That's H-O-R-S-T-E-D to um, order the book and hardcover versions as well. And, of course, Paul is coming to um, communities throughout the Black Hills, uh, Custer County Library on uh, Saturday, August 26th, the Rapid City Journey Museum on the 27th, and in Spearfish on the 31st at Black Hills State University. And, Paul, thank you, as always, for talking with us today. We appreciate your time. Well, Lori, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Let's take a moment now for fair season in South Dakota. the state fair kicks off in just six days. Meanwhile, county fairs across the state have been bringing people together for food and fun. Did we mention the food? SDPB's Jackson Thorson explored the Sully County Fair in Oneida, and he asked people this question, what's your favorite thing to do at the fair? Golly, well, the Bloody Mary bar. (laughs) You can make your own. It's a good fundraiser for the fair board. Getting to see all of my old classmates. All the people that you get to see only once a year. My daughter came from Kansas, one niece came from Wisconsin, and the two other nieces came from Minnesota. Definitely meeting new people all around. It's it's such a small town and you get to know every single person. It's so nice to see people you haven't seen in like a few months since it's summer. We're from here, but we're not here anymore. And so I think just getting everybody back here and seeing everybody, that's my favorite. The food, food's the best. (laughs) 10 out of 10, every time. Chili's great, ribs are great, it's all good. All the food. Food. The food. Food and animal barns. The chili feed. Be the chili cook-off. Be the chili cook-off and the rodeo. I love the rodeo. Excited about the rodeo. Uh, I used to do a little bit of rodeo back in the day. Everything. It's pretty fun, first time here. I, I grew up in this town. I remember the fair when I was this size. I like playing. I would have to say the bouncy houses kept my kids occupied all afternoon, gives them something extra to do. The um, 
They're kind of those. I like the I like the jumping castles and it feels fun here, but the most thing I'm with my cousins. Um I kinda like the cow thing, whatever that's called. And we're gonna I got a ticket for a cow patty bingo and I gotta go see where she poops. <laughs> I've never watched it before. Sounds from the Sully County Fair in Oneida, South Dakota. For more stories from Oneida, stay plugged in to the upcoming season of SDPB's Dakota Life. Follow along sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. When we come back, Kevin Wooster goes looking for a turtle, finds a flower, and learns a whole lot about the Nebraska Sandhills. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. In 1963, a Blanding's turtle was sighted near the Big Sioux River in South Dakota. It was a rare sighting indeed. Now, all these years later, journalist Kevin Wooster is on the lookout for the turtle species, but not at the Big Sioux River. Wooster drove south of the Dakota's border recently and explored wetlands and grasslands and sandhills of Nebraska. And he is with us now from our... Dion Kaler Studio in Rapid City with the story. Hey, Kevin. Hey. <laughs> New hey, space Lord. for cool, you. <laughs> cool uh, cool place down in the basement here. Uh, nice to be here. I New think, digs. I think you're the first live broadcast from this space. So Very cool. Very cool. I'll try not to mess it up. <laughs> Don't break anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So you, last time we talked, you were on the phone because you were taking a drive down to the Sand Hills, which I've only been to once. I... I'm happy to say that I've been there once now, but it was a little yeah. sheepish to say I had not been there before. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. What, what, uh, what were you looking for? What sort of sites were kind of jumping out at you that got you thinking about turtles and flowers and things of that nature? Well, you know, I planned this return from Lincoln where we were for a family thing, and, and Mary flew on to Chicago, and I came home, uh, and I wanted to drive through the, the uh, Sand Hills. It had been many years since I'd been down there. And I uh, wanted to drive up on 83 and, and uh, go uh, through the Valentine National Wildlife Refuge, which is right along 83 on both sides of the road, mm -hmm. and stopped at, a, at an information kiosk there and, and they got a little nature trail. And I spent more time than I planned and, and got home later than I, I wanted to, but uh, it, was, it was wonderful. I and mean, you can imagine the rain they've had this year. The, yeah. The sand hills are just amazing, and that's a—they are amazing on their own, whatever condition uh, they might happen to be in. And they're very informative uh, kiosk. If you're driving, there's mm -hmm. great opportunities to get to know the landscape you're in if you have a little time or can make a little time at a place like that. And yeah. So I drove and walked and looked around, took some pictures, and started thinking about the Blanding's turtle. And <laughs> Tell me why the turtle? What? Why this turtle? Why this? Uh, why this sort of? Mm. Um, lovely, well, uh, lovely obsession. Yeah. Well, I yeah, and as I, I 
point out in the in the blog, I'm at the age in my writing life where I can obsess on things if I feel like it, and public <laughs> broadcasting is indulges me that, which is yeah. very nice. And, uh, you know, in the old days at the Journal or the Argus or wherever, if I'd have said, you know, I'm going to write a whole bunch of stuff on the Blanding's turtle, I maybe they would have said, no, you're going to write about uh, Governor Knoll or something <laughs> like that. Not, not yet, but, you're not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and you, the, on the, the information panel, and, uh, it just talked about how they are uh, not, they are rare throughout their range, which is from, you know, central Nebraska over to the Great Lakes and and they're really in a lot of trouble in most of that range uh, from habitat destruction and fragmentation, not just the destruction, but one patch of habitat, wetland habitat, farther away from the next, and it makes it harder to connect, and, and it makes it harder for them to find places to nest because they go upland to nest. And it doesn't take me very long to get interested in a wildlife species, and this one, I thought, I've never seen a blanding turtle. So I started to look, and it was also interesting that they're building fences, or they have built fence along the refuge, along Highway 83, because yeah. the landings get killed a lot crossing roads. Uh, all turtles do. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just the, that's the kill zone for a poor wandering turtle that's going from one place to the other to, to nest or whatever. And they're more susceptible than a lot of turtles because they're so shy, and any noise, any sound, any movement causes them to withdraw into their shell and stay there for quite a while. Yeah. And if that happens on a road, that's a really bad place to stay. So all of that I found fascinating and wanted to look look at a little more closely. We have to talk about this flower as well because oh, <laughs> what a story yes. this is. The pentstemon. Oh. Uh. And that's, again, that's a bonus. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do that. But you walk over a little farther, and here's this story on the panel uh, out there in the information kiosk about the blowout penstemon and the name itself, a blowout penstemon. Mm -hmm. And I knew a little bit about blowouts, which is, you know, this sandhills environment when it gets grazed down, when there's a fire, when certain things happen to it. Back in the old, you know, old, old days when there were millions of buffalo out there and would come across and wallow and rub and roll and things in it, they could create these, these areas where the, the cover is gone, the plants are gone, and the sand is open to the wind. And it would cause these blowouts, these indentations, these holes in the dunes, usually on the northwest side, often at least, because of the wind was coming that way, the strongest. And uh, this lovely little penstemon was uh, one of those first uh, arrivals after that land got hurt to start the process of healing. And, you know, and it, it uh, ironically enough, because there's been so much work on private land to heal the land, to take care of it on the private ranches, done an excellent job in, in most areas down there, the, the, the blowout penstemon hasn't been able to find many blowouts. And uh, that's good, and it's bad. It's good for overall, bad for that little plant, that lovely little plant. So what is the solution then to create space for this plant without um, sacrificing the good work that's being done to heal the land? Yeah, it, it's going to be a solution in little areas. I, I read that uh, back when they, were, when they listed it as state and nationally uh, endangered, because it really only exists anymore in the Sandhills and a little patch of Wyoming uh, with similar habitat. Um, you're not going to ask the, the ranchers. You don't want them to abuse their land. They don't want to. You don't want them to. But on federal property, these national wildlife refuges, two in particular, the Valentine National Wildlife Refuge and the Crescent Lake National Wildlife Refuge, which is part of this Sandhills 
uh, refuge complex, uh, which is farther uh, west and south in Nebraska, they are doing work to restore it. And they do work um, by doing what we would consider abusing the land. They, they graze it. They, they bring in even tractors with scoops on them and dig mm-hmm. out, uh, you know, blowouts. And then they transplant uh, blowout pen stemming from the nursery into this, this blowout that they've created and try and get them going again, uh, you know. They were down when they were declared in the late 80s, uh, down to the estimate was about 7,000 plants on a total of about 25 acres left. So they're trying to keep that wonderful plant um, around so that we can all enjoy it. Wow, fascinating stuff. Um, Kevin Wooster's work is always on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster, where you can read that full story. Kevin, I'm so glad that you have the space to... uh, to wander and ponder and, and bring that to our listeners. So I really appreciate that and appreciate talking to you today. Thanks, Lori. This weekend and grab your lawn chairs, head out to the Hot Springs Airport and watch the sunrise. As a bonus, you'll see quite a few hot air balloons launch right around 6 a.m. local time. That is because the annual Fall River Hot Air Balloon Festival is taking place in Hot Springs this weekend. There will be several events, but the big ticket item, the balloon launch, is early in the morning on Saturday and Sunday. Joining us now on the phone, we have Olivia Mears, Executive Director of the Hot Springs Chamber of Commerce. Olivia, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Help explain to people how this festival got started. What? How far back does it go, and, and it, why? Well, it goes back to 2016, and a family had moved to town um, and Petra Wilson was a balloon pilot. And so in 2016, just her and a couple of friends, so it was three balloons with not much fanfare. They launched off the from the airport, and about 80 people came out just by word of mouth. Mm. And they said, man, this should be a good thing. So she then came to the chamber in, um, you know, the, after that and said, would we be interested in taking on this event and making it a chamber event and seeing if we could grow it? And at, at that point we said, yes, we think that would be a wonderful idea. So I basically became the festival director at that point. And we started off with, um, I think our 2017 had maybe between six and eight balloons and we've grown it each year um, till we we now we cap at 30 balloons. We don't take more than 30. Mm. And uh, even when we had COVID, because it was an outdoor event and people didn't have to uh, be near each other, it was very easy to social distance on something like that. We still had the the festival. And it's a wonderful thing for people to do. It's totally free. So that was a big thing that we wanted to make sure was that it was a family-friendly, free event. And so it's been going since 2016, but 2017 it became a chamber event. All right. So this is the, the it's a festival. There's lots of different things to do. But, I, I mean, Hot Springs is a beautiful town. 
anyway. And then you're there at sunrise, which I highly recommend. And then you get to watch these beautiful balloons take off. Tell people how to prepare for the event and kind of have the best experience with the balloon launch part of this. Okay, so with these events, we have to let everybody be aware these are all weather dependent. Uh, the pilots have to decide there's a... You know, if there's a bad storm, if the wind is too high. So everything's weather dependent, but we've been very fortunate so far that we do uh, have our launches. And I would tell folks, be there early. Uh, make sure you're wearing layers because it can be cool in the morning, but then it gets a little warmer. Uh, bring bug spray. Uh, and a camping chair. We do have bleachers. We do have a bit of refreshments for sale. We've got T-shirts for sale. Uh, there's portable bathrooms. But, you know, bring water, bring bug spray, and wear layers. And uh, be mindful of the traffic and come and have an amazingly unique experience. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the balloon pilots or who coordinates the safety of that event to make it something that balloon pilots want to be a part of. So now we have um, balloon events have what's called a balloon meister, <laughs> and that's the person that's in charge of all the pilot-related activities. So our current uh, balloon meister is a wonderful lady called Tammy Shrum, and she actually came to us uh, two years ago. Uh, she originally helped us as safety officer, um, and we'd grown quite large. She also last year brought us the shape balloons of Darth Vader and Yoda, which was a big draw. And she's got loads of experience. She's flown all over the world. She's a commercial-rated pilot. Um, she's been flying since 2010, but she's been involved with ballooning since around 1998. Uh, flown in six countries, 37 states, she instructs, and just a pleasure to work with, and she's very, very diligent about safety. Wow. And so, you know, this is, takes a year to get off the ground. It's kind of, once it's over, we take a breather for a month, and then we start all over again. <laughs> so all the pilots um, and getting them vetted and making sure we've, and we have, basically return pilots. We've got a wonderful group that enjoy coming every year. There's a bit of a wait list as well. And so she handles that. And then mine and Zoe, my, my uh, media coordinator, the two of us, we handle the pilot accommodations, the pilot packs, all the logistical things, uh, booking the lights, the equipment, all the festival elements. So we, we basically say she's air and we're ground. All right, but I do want to know, have you ever gone up in one of these balloons? To, to I see? have not. You have I've not. Been, been very fortunate to have been offered the privilege, but I am one of those afraid of heights <laughs> folks. And so I've, I've respectfully declined, but they've been very generous to offer me. And every year someone says, come on, are you going to go up this year? Mm -hmm. It's like, I am so sorry, no. <laughs> but, you know, people who have gone have told me what an, an incredible experience it is because it's very, very beautiful up there. It's a different view. Yeah. And all the pilots, they're, they're all uh, vetted to make sure they have safety records. Everyone is insured, things like that. So 
Tammy's very diligent about all the safety elements of the festival, um, and we make sure that it's as pleasant and fun for everybody to yeah. attend. Bring your cameras because what a sight, what a, specta- what a spectacle to see a hot springs at sunrise in the first place and then add those beautiful balloons. So oh, for, yes. for listeners, the festival August 25th through the 27th, so that's just tomorrow, and the balloons are going to launch at 6 a.m. local time. That's weather permitting, safety permitting, so uh, bring a good attitude about about the weather, and it all kicks off at the Hot Springs Airport. Also, our um, SDPB's Dakota Life uh, went to Hot Springs in the past and has beautiful footage of this event at sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. So if you, if you can't make it there but want to learn a little more, that's a good place to check it out. And if you don't want to go up in the blue and we'll take you up with the, the camera and you can <laughs> watch from a safe vantage on your couch. Um, yeah. Olivia Mears, thank you so much for uh, your time today. Just love Hot Springs. Haven't been there in a while, but uh, looking forward to coming back. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And if I could just remind people that it doesn't end with the balloons. Yes. After that, come on down into Hot Springs. There's a full day of events. Um, f- uh, FourRiverBalloonFest.com can tell you everything you need to know on uh, the schedule because it's it's so many things happening and I thank you so much for giving me the privilege of promoting our little festival we're very proud of our town (laughs) and our festival (laughs) it's been a delight to talk to you thank you so much and that is our show for today. We hope that it served you coming up on tomorrow's In the Moment. SDPB's Lee Strubinger will bring you an update on a Pennington County homicide case. And we'll talk about back-to-school mental health. How do we keep our kids safe and resilient when the pressures of the classroom return? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.